Hi, everyone. Okay, I got a lot of questions, so I'm going to get right into them. If you hear clicks throughout, it's because I'm going to be answering a couple questions and then getting back to work and then coming back to this over the next couple days. So <clears throat> right off the bat, um, I had put in the... Um, in the description or in the call for the questions that this one was going to be about food or nutrition or kitchen stuff. Um, so anything that was farming related, I'm not going to answer is just a way to vet through the almost 60 questions that are here right now. Um, but I do do farming ones. So save those ones for next time, please. And um, I also just wanted to say that um, anything that is nutrition related is um, just going to be answered generally based on myself. I'm not going to give any nutrition advice at all or be speaking as a nutritionist. I'm just going to tell you I can share with you things that I've done and that's about it. I can't recommend anything for anyone else. Okay, so the first question is um, that that it falls into the category of food or nutrition or kitchen stuff was from TC. And I'm just going back from the first questions that were submitted. Um, just asking about when I started eating other things other than animal foods and if I was able to eat animals, when I was able to eat animals, not too much dairy and have I healed from that? Is my body, um, how it's been with inflammatory ingredients or if preparation is key, that sort of thing. And so when you say inflammatory ingredients and preparation, TC, I'm, I'm guessing that you're talking about sort of the more inflammatory foods that, um, you know, with traditional preparation, like soaking or sprouting, we sort of mitigate some of those inflammatory reactions in the body. So if you're talking about grains, um, I have not eaten grains in well over 20 years, and I never would add those back into my diet again. Nope. Um, <laughs> no need for them. I don't miss them. And I just I think there's ways to mitigate inflammation. But um, why? <clears throat> it's just not that much more beneficial. And there's other things that happen other than the inflammation, including sort of an imbalancing of other nutrients and minerals and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that, um, and as far as like, you know, other foods as well, sort of like, let's talk about nightshades or nuts. I mean, I just don't see those ever being a part of my diet again. Um, like I said, I haven't eaten a lot of these foods for a very long time. This wasn't just, you know, before I went to an animal only diet, I had already been a very long time eating nose to tail and it was just sort of, um, and being grain free and being nightshade free. Cause I had already figured out those foods were issues for me. So, um, you know, before anyone goes to just eating animal foods, I always recommend that they take out the major offenders first and then see where they're at. Cause maybe they don't have to go that far for me. I did have to go that far. And I will say that over this summer, I've been eating all just from our farm, um, a lot more carbohydrate. I've been eating a lot. Um, you know, I started adding in vegetables as if they were seasonally available. Um, no nightshades though, but things like summer squash seem to be okay. I always cook that with ghee or butter or duck fat or something. And, um, you know, a little bit of salads just with lettuce, um, any Swiss chard or kale or sort of cruciferous vegetables, I just don't eat. Um, so, uh, and what I'll say is that um, it started causing problems again, actually. <laughs> I just find, and I'm now sort of, you know, we're in fall moving into winter and I'm sliding back into uh, mostly just animal foods again, and maybe I'll go all the way. And the reason for that is... Um, I just am astonished by the difference in my energy levels and also in the clarity of my brain. Um, I just feel so sharp when I remove a lot of that excess carbohydrate from my diet. And that's a big deal to me. Um, it's also my mood is I feel when I'm just really focusing on animal foods and animal fats and including, you know, everything. I mean, all the organs, um, bone broth, all that sort of thing. I'm not talking about steaks every day. Um, but when I am eating, um, you know, a nose to tail animal diet, I, my mood is so much better. 
um, I get it. I found this summer, which was interesting, that, you know, the sun was out and this is a time of year that I love. And, um, you know, it's um, typically a time of year where people feel pretty joyful. Um, I just found adding in all that extra fruit and vegetables and um, maybe not eating the same volume. I'm, I always eat a very good volume of protein, but, um, you know, when you add in other things, something else has to go, um, or gets declined or sorry, dwindles down. Um, and that definitely happened. I just, it's for me when I start eating, you know, extra fruit and, um, I was making ice cream as well. And I was eating some of that, um, something just shifts in my body and maybe I just have kind of a messed up body because of my, um, childhood, but, I start craving um, those types of foods um, really aggressively. And um, it's very unsettling for me. I don't like, you know, if I've eaten a meal, I don't expect to be hungry again two hours later or three hours later. Like, that's just not, I, I don't like working under that type of fuel burning. I prefer to eat a meal and be satiated and then go be physically active and not even really think about it for another four or five hours. And that's what um, eating like an adequate protein and good amount of fat in my diet does. And when I start adding in those other foods, I lose that freedom. So all that to say, um, I think this summer it was an interesting experiment. I um, started noticing more inflammation coming back into my body. And again, this is just really animal foods with our local fruit and veggies and raw dairy with, um, you know, the occasional ice cream, I guess, was the treat, but that wasn't even very often. So um, it was just, it just throws me out of whack. Um, so anyway, I hope, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I just gave you more questions than I did answers, TC. But anyway, that's where I'm at for right now. Becky's asking, how much planning foresight goes into my daily and weekly meal plans? Zero. I've never made a meal plan in my life. Is that awful? Um, I just don't. I, I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't. I go into the freezer the night before um, and take out whatever I'm going to eat for the next day. And that's what I make the next day. It's really like a ritual of going into the freezer or going into my preserve shelves and looking what's there and whatever looks interesting. I'll maybe like grab this type of ferment or this type of preserve and this type of protein and this type of fat. And then that's what we're eating the next day. Um, Tally is asking, what are your favorite cookbooks that I open often? So I've spoken quite a bit about on here about River Cottage series. All of them are great. Um, what else do I like? There's, um, a couple cool cookbooks out of Montreal from our favorite restaurant, Joe Beef. Those are good ones too. Uh, basically French cooking is what I gravitate towards because they're never shy with their fat um so let's see you can I, I've spoken before about going like to vintage stores and stuff and getting old French cookbooks um and there's like tons of new ones too I I I love cookbooks but I almost never use them but don't tell my husband because I have too many on the shelf um but definitely can't go wrong with the river cottage ones so Angela's asking if I have tips on supporting thyroid health. Um, I was actually uh, under the care of a thyroid specialist, an alternative one for a couple years because my T3 was so low and oh Lord, I went through the ringer and did all the things, all the things for that. That was also when I was sick with Lyme. So I have a better understanding of that now, but um I would just say uh, generally, um, if you live in an area that has low selenium, that's the first thing. I think it's the thing that's overlooked the most. But there are areas in North America, Angela, where there are very depleted levels of selenium. And I may be wrong on this. Someone will correct me, I'm sure. But I think it's either New Zealand or Australia also has woefully low levels of selenium. 
Um, and you need selenium. It's just a trace mineral, but you need it in order to have a properly functioning thyroid. So that's always the easiest thing to check and to um, correct. Other than that, I cruciferous vegetables are questionable. Um, sort of any vegetables or plants actually that have anti-nutrients can affect the thyroid. Making sure you have adequate protein and good animal fats are also important. I also um, take iodine. That's some people don't like the idea of taking iodine. I take iodine and I, um, I take the Lugol's iodine. I just take a couple drops. The other thing I do is I make, um, teas that have iodine in it, like through the seaweed that I use. So I make a tea that I infuse overnight with different herbs and I'll put a little sprinkle of a mixed seaweed powder in there. And I also, um, use seaweed in my bone broth. I always put a few leaves of something in there, different types. Um, but again, for the iodine. So uh, those would be my things. The other thing is sugar destroys the thyroid. So I'd really be careful about how much sugar is in your diet. Becca is asking what we did for vaccines for our kids as they were growing up and when they were born. Um, so Becca, our first daughter, um, who's now 29 years old, had and what received her first set of vaccines um, back then. It wasn't immediately like they do now, thankfully. And we were in the process of moving at the time. So she ended up not getting her first set of vaccines, anything at all, until she was, I think, four months, three or four months. And she had a severe uh, vaccine reaction that... Uh, landed us in the hospital and she got admitted overnight. Um, I had no idea, no idea at all. I thought getting your kids vaccinated was the responsible thing to do. And I was doing the right thing for my child. And I remember the pediatrician that came in the next morning before we were um, released because she had such a crazy fever and she was having seizures and screaming. It was awful. Um, screaming a scream I'd never heard her make before. And the pediatrician said, you know, you probably should not have this child vaccinated again. And I mean, thank goodness for him, but I thought he was a lunatic. I could not believe a doctor was saying that to me. It was like a death sentence. I thought, well, how is she going to live if she's not vaccinated? So I've told this story before. I'll keep it quick. We ended up, I ended up driving a few hours to this real granola head bookstore that was in the city nearest to us um, because we were on a small military base and I got a couple books from there and I read them from cover to cover in a couple days and felt so much better more reassured although one of them was very balanced and so you know it wasn't as if they were so biased that they were um that it was completely making me feel okay because I didn't know anyone else doing that. But anyway, so that's um, that was that. And that started me off on a journey. There was a magazine back then. Maybe it's still around. It was called Mothering. But they had um, just incredible, back then anyways, it was quite rogue. And it was all about breastfeeding and, you know, not vaccinating your children and homeschooling and... Um, those ideas at that time were a little bit radical, to be honest. So anyways, I, I started reading that magazine and I started reading more books whenever I could get my hands on them. And um, then I ended up joining this group. I don't even remember how it's like through the mail. And I started getting copies of um, uh, photocopies of vaccine adverse reactions from the U.S. military. It was a mom whose son had been um, vaccine damaged by the military and she just started this group out of the U.S. and she would she photocopied and sent out these packages to people so you could see what was actually going on. Someone had smuggled out these vaccine adverse reactions to this vaccine they were doing and then anthrax came along and then people were smuggling out stuff from there that I was getting my hands on and in Canada they used the Canadian soldiers um, as guinea pigs for methylquin when they went to Somalia and we had friends that got very vaccine damaged um, from that and um, 
there was a lot of stuff going on at the time. And I ended up joining with this member of parliament and um, he was sharing information. He was getting, anyway, I'm getting off track. All that to say it started off a <laughs> avalanche of research and um, joining up with organizations and people that were trying to um, figure out what was going on. And so my uh, doubts around pharmaceuticals come come by me with uh, naturally with a lot of experience and a lot of um, investigation that I've done over the years. I mean, decades, really. So that's the story about our kids. Um, that first daughter is doing very well. She's very healthy. Um, none of our other kids were vaccinated. And word on the street for my oldest daughter, who's now almost seven months pregnant, is she won't be vaccinating her child either. Um, so Kara is asking what my thoughts are on eating a primarily red meat, almost all red meat, um, because they're not able to find farmers who raise proper meat except for cow and bison. And they're buying their animals directly from the farmer and enjoying those two meats, hoping to fill our first hunting tags this year with deer. I think it's awesome. I think everybody should be eating red meat. Um, unfortunately, the it, it's really the other way now. People think that somehow chicken or these white meats are healthier, and they're actually absolutely not healthier. Um, they're full of seed oils. They have a lot more omega-6 in them. A lot of them are fed these soy, and they're all fed grains. They have a very, very different fat profile. I use like the white meats and that's from our farm that's um you know duck geese turkey chicken um I'm using that very judiciously and that's how they used to be eaten too by the way you know back in the day a chicken was like pulled out once a month or butchered once a month and that was a special meal that wasn't the day-to-day -day food um I would say if you I anyway I love red meat I love cow I love bison I love elk and deer and if you can get wild game to just diversify your diet that's great Kara <clears throat> okay Rachel's asking um, about me not eating grains and she's wondering if I could share my thoughts on whether properly prepared versions have their place bringing up um the issue that there's cultures that have relied on them traditionally. Um, so, so I would say, Rachel, if you enjoy eating them and you feel good eating them, then, you know, you can keep eating them. I, I personally, um, looked into this a long time ago, um, when I took them out of our diets and I looked at sort of the health of our species before agriculture, uh, you know, we were taller, we were more robust. Um, and then sort of what happened after we brought grains into our diet. For um, us, when I took them out of our diet, I noticed a dramatic effect in how it made me feel. Our kids were really young. It was easy um, to just remove it from their diet without even um, you know, them even kind of getting what was even going on. So, um, and everybody seemed to do better and they have, um, really strong immune systems and hardly ever got sick at all. And a bunch of little things that I noticed just went away. And so we just never looked back and yeah, I never, I, I just don't see any need for them in our diets anymore at all. I think that, you know, for especially in, given my health and sort of what I've been through, um, I just won't eat anything that causes a drain on my body. And whether that's through mineral balance or causing more inflammation, which, you know, when you have inflammation in your body, your body's pulling on nutrients to try and combat that. Um, my body needs all the help it can get. And so I try to go easy on it. And like I said, it's it's almost hard to even remember what it's like to eat those foods. And um, 
you know, anytime I've tried, you know, a friend will give me um, a slice of sourdough organic bread that's been properly prepared. It's just like, uh, oh, I do not like how it makes me feel at all. So that's, that's my reasoning for it. And, um, you know, by all means, if it's, if it's something that works for you, don't listen to me, just do what works for you. But if you've never tried removing them from your diets, I think it's worth it, you know, not for, not for a week or two, but give it a good couple months and, and see. I think a lot of grains is that people get used to eating a certain way and they are like, well, what would I eat if I didn't have this? And now I can't even think how, what would I cook if I had grains? I, nothing that would add more nutrition or vitality to my body. So I just, that's basically why they'll never be in my diet again. So Emily is asking, um, when I hang ducks without removing the insides and let them age as is, do I still use the organs as I would otherwise? Because she's noticed some color differences in the organs after they've sort of hung for a little bit. So for those of you that don't know, um, we started hanging our ducks with the feathers still on in a meat cooler after they've been um, slaughtered. And we do that for a couple days. And what that does is it uh, ages and tenderizes the meat. So it just develops the flavor of the meat a bit. It's a traditional way. I mean, if you look at old French paintings, you'll see that they always have pheasants and ducks and um, waterfowl hanging fully intact by a fire or just up on the wall or whatever. So, um, but yes, Emily, the answer to your question is you will notice a difference in color of the organs. I think that's just um, a a natural sort of enzymatic reaction that's going on. And that little tinge of green that you're talking about on the liver, exactly what you said, is just a bit from uh, coloring from the gallbladder. No worries, no issues. And um, like you said, you, uh, Emily said that she can tell that they are healthy and there's no foul smell. And that is so important. Let your nose be your guide. Um, but yes, definitely you will notice that and they're still great. Um, okay, so Home by Blue Gray Downs is um, asking how I make my elixirs. Um, so you just, whatever your edible flower is or that you're going to be using, um, let's say, hmm, let's do lilacs. Um, you just mix it with a good amount of runny honey and in water and taste it. And it should be, you can use, I think traditionally, if you look online for a recipe, you'll see everyone uses sugar and citric acid. And I think that's if you want it to be shelf stable for a long time. I I don't do that. I just used honey and um, mix them together so it's nicely sweet. And I just put them on the counter in the sun with something uh, breathable on top, just a cotton cloth or tea towel or something and stir it a couple days, a couple times a day for two to three to four days, depending how long, um, uh, how warm it is, sorry. And then just taste it and it should be, when it's ready, it'll be effervescent and delicious. Milkweed is my favorite one, as most of you already know. That's a cordial that I make. And then you just filter it out. You can um, put it in the fridge if you, uh, put it in the fridge with the lid. I find it keeps for quite a while, actually, like a few weeks. Um, let's see. This summer, I brought my friend uh, Milkwood Cordial as a mix with some really good gin and some mineral water. And I told her to make her and her husband some cocktails that evening. And that is just a delicious cocktail if any of you are drinking cocktails. Uh, the next question was what my thoughts were in terms of balancing, balancing fiber and what do I enjoy as fiber? I never think about fiber ever, ever. And I have no issues. Fiber actually, there's actually a book called the fiber menace. And I heard that guy speaking at a Weston A. Price conference years and years ago. 
Um, it's a great book. You should read it if you are worried about fiber. Um, and I'm going to leave it there. There's some farm questions, but I have to have to keep things to one or two questions each. Okay. So Yvette, please send me your farm questions when we get around to the farming. Um, all right. Sonia is asking where I get my whack jars from. Um, in Canada, in the States, you guys have it way easier than we do. And in Europe, well, way, way, way easier than we do. In Canada, um, I started a wholesale account with the distributor of WEC jars, and I order a ridiculous amount of WEC jars. I started a WEC jar buying club because I needed WEC jars, and I couldn't afford to buy them two at a time or six at a time. I needed dozens at a time. And so I've done that now for Mm, probably seven years and um, I have a good amount of whack jars but I'm always adding a couple more every year and that way if you have a buying club you can meet the minimums and uh, if you have other things that you start buying clubs for you can just work it into that you can work those jars into that buying club as well um, Shannon's asking about where I source my electrolyte ingredients and she can only find them in pill form. Um, I'm not sure what you think they are. So my electrolyte ingredients are salt, um, which I get my salt from Giddy Yo-Yo. It's um, a mountain salt and um, potassium. I get potassium chloride. Um, you can buy that just, you know, in bulk, free flowing. Um, and then magnesium powder. And sometimes I don't even put the magnesium powder in there. That's it. Easy. Nikki is asking about my stove and range hood. And if the hood really makes my kitchen less greasy and is the stove worth its cost? Ha. Huh. Okay. This range hood. Uh, yes. 105 million percent. Um, I fry a lot of food. I mean, I'm eating a steak and pausing this every few minutes so I can chew, um, that I just seared on the stove in duck fat. And so that's kind of like my fast food. And so there's always something on my stove. The other thing is I've always got bone broth going as well. Um, I have... A wood stove I put bone broth on and then I have my stove that I also cook bone broth on but there's always um the the other issue is that with the stove that I have um it has a vent that runs up the back and then sort of goes up the wall so if you don't have a range hood there if depending on what stove you end up getting you might want to find out how it vents itself because um there's a lot of heat that rises from the back of there. And if I didn't have the range hood going, it would just be going up and on my walls and I don't know, seeping over to the cupboards, I guess. As far as is the stove worth the money, I didn't get one of those $30,000, $40,000 look corn new ones or whatever they're called. I think that is craziness. But if you have one, God bless you. Um, but for me, I couldn't, no way. Um, so I have the Ega lease. I think in the States, they're like 8,000, 9,000. Here it was like 12,000 because everything's more expensive here. Um, and I think that is the most, uh, ex that is by far the most expensive, uh, appliance I've ever bought. Is it worth it? Um, to be honest, if I were to do it over again, I think I would probably go for the Fisher and Packle one that I was looking at that was about three or four thousand dollars. I've my whole life had like General Electric and Westinghouse and all just really basic ovens, um, stoves, and um, they were miserable to cook on. And so when we were finally doing our renovation and after all these years and I really wanted something that was a delight to cook on and uh, I love that it has two ovens and then it has a, 
uh, sliding out drawer that is um, like a broiler so I can put two steaks in there and close it up and they're ready in just a few minutes it's pretty awesome it's right up against the broiler um, and the stove top is excellent but um, I just don't know if any stove is worth that kind of money to be honest I don't know um, I'm grateful I have it would I do it again no I don't think so I think I would go for the you know, higher end, normal human being type costed one. <laughs> Please, no hate from the Le Cornu people. Um, would love to hear the relationship question and answer. This is from Janelle. Um, and she's saying that um, it's more nutrition than kitchen, but she's been told that she's estrogen dominant. And most naturopaths are telling her to reduce animal inputs, which seems counterintuitive. And she's been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. Um, doesn't know where to start. Um, so I'm not going to give specifics to now, like I said earlier at the beginning of this, but I will say that like I've had issues around adrenal fatigue a lot um, in my life, not right now, but I have. And um, big things, things that were really big for me were um, sleep is the most important. And um, I'm not sure if you've been um, making sure that you're getting morning and evening light, but that is huge. Um, there was a recent podcast on Huberman lab. If you've never heard of it, it's just the Huberman lab podcast and it was on sleep. And, uh, he speaks on there about these really simple things that you can do to get that squared away and one of the things is like being very careful with light in the evenings being very careful to get out in the light during the day uh, I would also say other things that have helped me tremendously with adrenal fat fatigue is different herbs adaptogenic herbs you can look into I'll put the link I'll make a little note for myself here and I'll put the link for a great book that I have on adaptogenic herbs um, that you might want to get and look into yourself. Um, I'm assuming a doctor that's skeptical that this can be treated with nutrition. I don't know what kind of doctor that is, if it's like a naturopath or an MD, but, um, I think the, I'll, I'll also put the link for the Huberman lab sleep thing as well. And then another thing that I would say is uh, really helpful is meditation. This is what's been helpful. I'm just saying what's been helpful for me um, was meditation. And I tried meditation so many times um, and it just didn't click with me. And then I found this type of meditation called Ziva. I'll put a link to that too. I'm just writing it down. Um, and I found that through Rob Wolf. Um, and his wife, Nikki, who were talking about it. And they were saying that they too just meditation didn't jive with them. They could never really get into it. And then they found this technique and it was 20 minutes and they were singing the accolades. And so, uh, Troy and I did the course together and it's the only thing we've been able to be consistent with as far as meditation goes anyway. And so I would really recommend that as well. And then I guess another thing is that um, sugar, and I'm just wondering if you have sugar in your diet because sugar destroys the adrenals, just ravages them. So, and then as far as a naturopath telling you to reduce animal inputs, I'd get another naturopath there. That's the truth. Okay, Sophia is asking how I approach soap or cleaning the kitchen, specifically washing up after butchering or milking. We don't butcher in the kitchen. We butcher, we have a butchering shed that we butcher in. Um, but as far as that goes, um, we have a big butcher block on it. And to clean that up, we use hot soapy water, just cast style soap. And then we spray vinegar on it, like a higher um, percentage acetic acid vinegar. Um, like an actual cleaning vinegar, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then after milking, um, just soap and water, hot soap and water. That's all. That's pretty much all we do for anything. Um, as far as, uh, let's see, laundry, pots, dishes. <clears throat> Again, it's just, um, 
I just buy seventh generation unscented laundry detergent and we use borax and vinegar in our laundry and pots is seventh generation washing soap. And then for cleaning everything, I use black soap and black soap is a type of castile soap from France. And it's amazing. You can use it for everything. You can use it for your floors. You can use it to wipe down counters. It has a really specific smell that, oh, I just love that smell. A lot of people maybe wouldn't like it, but I love it. So you can use it on your body if you want to. It's it's fabulous. And it comes in a very concentrated form. It's almost like a jelly. I'll put a link to the black soap as well in the, in the notes of this podcast uh for my body and hair we i make tallow based soap i haven't made it in i don't know a year my neighbor makes it and so i've gotten lazy um and for my hair i've used perma earth tallow based shampoo and now my neighbor's making it so i've been using that and then sometimes um in the last couple months I've used I've bought this stuff called Moroccan method I think it's called it's like a clay based shampoo and it's nice I guess but I don't go anywhere like no one laughs at me if my hair looks like a big grease ball so I don't know I I haven't tried to do anything with my hair when I use it and I do notice my hair feels really heavy so I I hesitate to recommend it but if you're like interested it's called Moroccan method and the ingredients are amazing it does not at all foam in your hair it just kind of sits on your hair I'm not sure what it's supposed to be doing but anyway if you're looking for something if you try let me know what you think um don't hate me if you end up looking like a big mop too but it's it's interesting stuff anyway um, Barbara's asking about um, thoughts, tips, tricks on feeding kids when everything around us is processed junk from school birthday stuff to soccer snacks to grandma's house. What's the secret? It feels impossible to go anywhere. I'm writing an essay on that and uh, I'll probably have it done in a couple weeks. <clears throat> it's honestly the psychology of the parent more than it is anything else and no one wants me to really say that sometimes I think they'd rather hear like how to get around things but it really comes down to being the parent and having a strong spine and being willing to have your kids mad at you and to set a consistent example and to if these foods are bad why would you have them in your house ever that's an example or when you're going to someone's house and or in-laws are feeding them things you don't want them to feed um you know we have to stand up and be the parent and be willing to have people mad at you but there's a lot more detail and nuance to that i know i understand and so i think maybe writing it all out will be better um she did say if i skip that question which i kind of am um she's asking about how functional medicine doctors including her own say dairy is inflammatory even when it's raw for people with IBS allergies etc what's my argument against this and what benefits did you see yourself including them in your diet um well it's interesting I I don't know how anyone can say something that definitively and it just always worries me and I've written essays about this quite a few of them actually about other people telling you what is inflammatory in for you i mean you're you have this exquisite feedback medicine feedback mechanism called your body that will tell you that on all on its own so why take anyone else's word for it i don't care who they are i mean if you try raw dairy and it's inflammatory you're gonna know and then you take it out but as far as anyone saying such things with such conviction, I, I just find it surprising because all the studies on dairy are using pasteurized dairy. And when you look at a time before pasteurized dairy and, and um, how people used to consume raw milk and didn't have all of these issues we have today with dairy, um, you know, you have to ask what changed. And what changed was not only our bodies and the processing of the milk but also 
what the cows were eating and the cows themselves changed. So, um, you know, by a, if, if someone wants to remove dairy, I can totally see, go ahead, remove dairy. But there's so many nuances and factors involved, including whether it's been pasteurized or it was raw, what kind of cow it was. If the cow is A1A1, which is a beta casein, which is a protein in the milk and causes inflammation in people's bodies, or if the cow has been tested and proven to be A2A2, which is what a traditional milk cow always was before the early 1900s when a blip happened in modern dairy cows and has been um, bred and and into the modern day dairy herd especially with Holstein type cows um, you know if the cow's getting a lot of grain or the cow's on grass and with just a smaller amount of grain or if it's getting grain what type of grain is the grain organic I mean is what type of housing conditions is the cow and is the cow outside in the sun I mean there's so much so much that goes into that that um I'm just always surprised when people can say something so uh, a blanketed statement like that with such little understanding of even what they're what they're talking about as far as all the different variables that are involved. Anyway, that's my take on it, Barbara. So Anna is asking how much fiber what my thoughts on fiber. I already mentioned the book, The Fiber Menace. Uh, Weston A. Price has some good articles on fiber as well. And she's saying she gets 10 grams a day, but her fitness coach is asking for 25 grams a day. Um, whoa, if I ate 25 grams a day of fiber, I would not feel good. But anyway, I'll leave it at that because I mentioned uh, the other fiber resources um, in the previous question. Georgia is asking about making efficient use of small kitchen spaces. She's living in under 380 square feet. Holy smokes, Georgia, that's amazing. Um, what kitchen tools and appliances would I prioritize over others? Um, well, this one I'm going to kind of meld in. There's another question here. I can't remember who asked it, but I did read it. And they were asking about cookie sheets. And so I'm going to kind of blend these two because I never had cookie sheets. I had a broiling pan and I've spoken about that before. They used to, when you would, they'd give you an oven. And I think someone told me that they might still do this, but they would give you this heavy steel enamel coated broiler pan that had like, you could, you know, put bacon on the top of it, had little slits in it. And then they drip down into the pan below. And so you've kind of got a two in one pan there because the pan, you just take the top piece of the pan off if you look it up, a broiling pan, you'll see what I'm talking about. But you can cook things. I would like roast all my vegetables and stuff in the bottom part. And I would just use the bottom, the top part on it when I would cook bacon or um, dry things. You can dry things in a really low oven sometimes. Like I would make mushroom crackers where I just dehydrate mushrooms. And uh, I would put nuts on the top of there as well and dehydrate them. This is way back in the day, everybody, like when my kids were little, little. Um, let's see. So I love a broiler pan. I still use it all the time. You don't need a cookie sheet when you have it. Um, and then the one thing that I had right from when I was, I think, 22 or 23 years old, was a Vitamix and it takes up a lot of space but it does a million and one things and I I've had I literally four years ago um my Vitamix finally died I couldn't believe how long I had it for and I was so sad when I had to get a new one because they're not the same but they're still great it's just not quite the same um really good knives obviously I would just I can get away with one knife there's um I really like Japanese knives, Japanese carbon knives, and I'd rather have one knife I paid 300 bucks for than 16 doll knives that I paid 12 bucks each for. So um, really, if you have one good knife, that's all you need. And I mean, if you're living in 380 square feet, I feel like I'm, t you know, saying things you figured out long and probably better than I ever even could. Um, you know, when we... 
when uh, we were moving, we used to always just have enough cups that everyone had their cup and everyone had their plates. And um, my my kitchen was very basic. I had one Dutch oven and I had one pot <laughs> and I could pretty much get away with that. My broiling pan, I had um, a cast iron I don't know what you would call it, like a, not a lasagna pan, but sort of like a longer dish. I had um, dishes, I had vintage dishes, I still do actually, um, the ones that can, you can store your food in, they have a, they're made of glass and then they have a glass lid and you can actually take it out of the fridge and put it in the oven and cook it in there as well. And so when I used to have leftovers, I would individually portion them out into these glass dishes and then everybody could just take theirs and put them in there to reheat them um yeah and I guess the last thing for us was I remember I don't even know if they make them anymore but like a portable dishwasher um they used to have portable dishwashers where you would like wheel it over to the sink and hook it up to wash your dishes some of the military houses we had had those and I would put a big butcher block on top of it and that's what I used to cut all my food on because the counter space was so abysmal sometimes you would have like 10 inches beside the stove as counter space so I I did that instead now you can also put like a big hunk of butcher block right on top of the stove I did that too and use that as your cutting surface before you start cooking so hopefully there was some little nugget in there for you Georgia Nicole is asking what my favorite simple fermented foods are that I make. Um, I don't know if I have favorite ones. I ferment almost everything that come grows in our garden or that I forage or whatever. Um, I think I'll do a post um, in the next couple weeks maybe of all the ferments that I've done throughout the summer and what I'm going into winter with for my fermented foods and canned foods. But um, as far as just like taste. One of my favorite things to ferment are the garlic seed buds that um, grow on the garlic scapes. They're, when they're really small, I ferment those and they're just delicious and they're, they're, they're hard and they're crunchy. I don't know, we all really like them in my family. So that's definitely one of my favorites. I like to um, preserve lemons and I'm lucky because I got a box from one of my readers of beautiful organic California lemons that I'm gonna salt and preserve tomorrow actually. Um, what else do our favorites? I really like asparagus, fermented asparagus. It has to be done right so it's good and crunchy, but I love it. I ferment salsa, and so there's always jars of salsa. That will last all winter long, and I don't eat it, but um, everybody else seems to really like it. Uh, Troy likes to eat it on his scrambled eggs. It's good. And... Um, Pickles like you. I really like pickles. I used to love kimchi, but I can't eat it so much anymore because of the um, nightshades in it from the peppers. But I will do a post and I'll, I'll take some pictures and sort of write a little ditty about what everything is in there. Um, Chantel is asking about the peach barbecue sauce that I make if I because I avoid nightshades if I make it without tomatoes because she made it with tomatoes and then tried it without um I yeah I don't add tomatoes to mine Chantel and uh if anyone I just had a friend that was looking up a peach barbecue sauce recipe and I recommended to her the one on Epicurious I think Epicurious.com um they have a good one uh, I just modify things. So if it says sugar, I usually put honey and then I don't use the tomatoes, but tomatoes do add a, a depth of flavor. And so you can develop that flavor in different ways. You can um, roast some of the peaches first to get sort of a smoky char on them to sort of deepen the flavor. You can cook them down even more. Or you could um, add some foraged, sort of a deeper, darker tasting mushroom. Or just try it without or make it with tomatoes if tomatoes work for you too. But 
I do those other things instead and I really like it and I don't miss the tomatoes but maybe if I was used to having a tomato based sauce I might miss it that's why I'm always a little bit hesitant to to give tell people these sorts of things because it may be so much different than what they're used to but that's what I do Tanya is asking if I do um, anything food-wise in my monthly cycle to support the changing needs throughout the month. Um, I eat a lot more. I think I heard that it's 300 calories more a day you need um, before your period. There's no way I just eat 300 calories more. I eat a lot more. I get ravenous. And it's interesting because I was talking about that with my daughters and they're the same way they just I and so for me I eat a lot more fat that's where I'm getting my extra calories from not because I'm thinking I should eat fat for calories but because my body's asking for it so that's what I do um and then that's about I would say that's really the only difference I also up my organ meat a little bit during that time too and that's just going with what my body's telling me to do. But other than that, I don't really find, you know, as long as I'm getting in those extra calories, everything seems to be pretty good. My mood is good and I feel level. And um, that might also, of course, be because of the extra fat. Okay, Riley is asking about using all the bits of the bird. Um, beside the obvious sort of meat, bones, feet, heart, gizzard, but what about um, head, lungs, etc.? So heads I put into bone broth, and that's for all of my birds. Um, for duck and geese, you can cut the tongues out of their heads. There's actually an Asian dish that's just duck tongues, um, but I just put it into my pate actually, and same with the lungs. And same with testicles, um, always into my pate, I put them in there. Uh, the only thing that I don't use are the intestines, which I feed to the wilds. And then the wilds say thank you. Okay, M is asking how, or how did I, or will I, with my grandkids, include young kids in the kitchen work, fun projects that I can suggest. She feels like she's saying, don't touch that more than I say yes to my two-year-old boy. Um, yeah, I think, I think that there's sometimes when we're cooking things, I used to cook something and then sort of slide some off to the side and give it to them in a way that they could cook things too. Uh, there's like little knives that you can get. I saw this woman actually, this was a couple years ago, and she had her little three-year-old, I think, three or four-year-old working with an actual knife in the kitchen. And I was just so impressed by that. I was a little bit scared, but it was also quite impressive just to see how relaxed she was with it and how competent her kid was with it. Um, but as far as me um, cooking, we had little stools and the kids would step up on the stool and I would give them something that was easy. So if I was cooking, you know, the I'd, I'd give them the little bowl of butter with the spoon and ask them to put the butter in with it into whatever I was making or I would ask them to spread something on. Obviously, and mostly it wasn't, it has to be appropriate to the age, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't really have to be a job. You can just make up jobs, you know, just give them something. They really want to just be sticky and messy and play around with it anyway. So, you know, maybe a couple of potatoes that you've mashed and you can give them something to stir into it or whatever it is, just so that they can feel like they're contributing. Even like silly little things like you cut up the meat and you give them something to put on top of it or they put the salt on or you know especially at like I think you said two years old like every little thing is just like a momentous experimentation in discovery so it's pretty easy at that age and then you can just adjust things as they get a little bit older and ask them to get things out for you and ask them to peel things and um you know and really involve them in the conversation and 
and tell them what you're doing and what you're making and why you're using these things. But like I said, that will come as as um, he gets older. And uh, what a fun time for you, two-year-old little boy in the kitchen. Oh, my heart. Aaron is asking what I feed my dogs and cats. Yep. So uh, I think I mentioned this on the last one. So they get one meal of raw and then they get one meal of um, a kibble that we buy. That's what we've settled on for years. I had new fees and I was feeding them raw for every meal. And um, I just, we just don't have the meat to be able to do that. We do have a lot of extra meat that we don't eat. And I do use tripe and stomach lining and stuff for the dogs as well from when we butcher our animals so we're able to do that so they get you know meat and then a lot of bone they always get a bone um not every day sometimes like today uh, my great dane got a couple of frozen chicken feet i call them his popsicles because he loves frozen chicken feet especially when it's hot my border collie got one and um but they also get a lot of uh, bone from animals that we've butchered as well. And then they get organ and meat and raw eggs and raw cultured dairy even sometimes. And they get seaweed. And um, yeah, that would be in their raw food. And it's just adjusted to size. I don't... When I first started feeding raw, that was, you know, 15 years ago or so, I guess, 20 years ago. And um, I read the books and I tried to do all the measuring thing and all that. And I just don't do that anymore. And the reason I feed the second meal of the day is kibble is uh, I use a really high quality kibble that's like human grade meat and then it doesn't have grains in it or beans in it. And um you know, it would be better if I could give them two meals of raw, but I have a great Dane and a border collie and then I have a whole farm. And so I just need one meal to be easier, to be honest, but I never give that to them just kibble. Like I'll always mix eggs into it. I'll mix, um, sometimes even just fish. Sometimes I'll do it half and half with like whole fish. There's these little fish that I can buy that are wild, that are um, like a whole fish and I'll just cut it in half and they'll eat the whole thing like that. So, um, and then as far as the barn cats go their their food looks the same. So they also get that same brand of like a high way too expensive kibble. And then they also get a meal of raw. Um, but to be honest, um, throughout almost all of the spring, summer and fall, we could probably just feed them one meal a day, they'll get their morning meal. And then at supper, it's still there because um, they're hunting a lot. And uh, they are fabulous hunters. So yep, that's what we do. So Casey's just asking about what um, I use as gauges of inflammation in my body because she's um, in the process of adding foods back in and she's sort of, some things are obviously causing her issues and some things don't, um, or she's having a hard time knowing if they do, I guess. Um, Well, I mean, that is very specific to everybody's body, Casey, but I remember when I first got sick, um... I mean, looking back, I realized it was when I was really starting to get sick with Lyme. At the time, I had no idea. But what first came up for me was um, when I was in the gym lifting weights, I remember saying to Troy, I don't know what's going on, but it's like my muscles are burning way too early. Like it's like it almost felt like that burn um, when you, you know, are on your eighth or 10th or 12th set of reps when you're lifting weights but it was happening right away and consistently. And um, I had no idea what it was (laughs) because I had not had any inflammation in my body before that. But that was the beginning uh, for me. And so uh, for me, it is on exertion, I get extreme fatigue and uh, burning that's way before um, it should be there, before my extent of endurance even hits. I'm, I'm sort of getting that buildup of, um, it's, that's what it feels like a buildup of lactic acid in my muscles. Uh, also just aches. Um, whenever I, you know, have, uh, 
anything hurts in my body and it hurts like in a chronic way, like for a few days, I know that the inflammation is high in my body because when my body is free of inflammation, I don't get aches, nothing hurts. I don't bend over and be like, oh, my back or sit down and say, oh, you know, when you sit down, that just doesn't happen when there's not inflammation in my body. So, um, and I think for me also the biggest thing, oh, sorry, I should say Casey mentions her gums get swollen. That's huge for me too. And for years, um, I would go to the dentist and they would do that little thing where they would check, um, how far your gums were receding and inflammation. And no matter what I did, I never ate sugars or anything. It didn't matter. They, my teeth were always causing some sort of issue. And, um, when I went, on just an animal-based diet, I went to the dentist and she said, what have you been doing? I I almost cried because I was so used to going to the dentist and just getting this woeful tale about how, you know, I was on a path to utter tooth destruction. And she was just like, your teeth look amazing. Your gums are fantastic. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm on to something here. Um, Yeah. So I guess, you know, for me, what I was going to say before that is the biggest issue is what's going on in my brain as well. And when your body's inflamed, your brain's inflamed. And when my brain's inflamed, um, I get foggy thinking. I sort of feel like I'm in a bit of a vortex, like I'm behind a veil almost maybe is the way to explain it. And I'm not quite fully in the moment that I'm in because I've got this sort of like hazy veil in front of me. It sounds a little bit obscure maybe, but that is what, that's the best way I could describe it. And uh, my mood goes down. I just feel kind of morose and I, that affects the way that I am in this world and that I am in my life. And so that really is the thing that is most motivating for me, to be frank, is that I like having a very clear and sharp mind and I like being really in a moment and I can only do that when I remove that sort of those inflammatory things but that's you know maybe lots of people that have inflammation in their body wouldn't even know what I'm talking about and wouldn't don't experience it that way so that all I can do is share with you what what it's like for me and it's probably really different for you but um you know how your body moves, how your mind thinks, what your mood is like. These are all indicators of um, you being on the right path or there needs to be things that you need to address. So those are the things that I would really try and pay attention to. Mariama is asking about following nutrition instincts and eating what your body is craving. If there's anything to this or do we need to overcome incorrect signals from years of eating processed junk? Um, I wrote a whole essay on this and I'm going to put the link to that as well um, here in the essay notes or on this page. So please look for that. Uh, The answer is that it's impossible to listen to instincts if they're muddled with the static of processed foods. So the most important thing is to get those instincts back and you get those back by removing things that are masquerading as food in your diet. You, it's just impossible otherwise. Um, but like I said, I get into that in the essay, so I'll include it. And then as far as um, skin health, inflammation, and the diet connection, it's everything. And it's what I was just speaking to about the gums. Um, but your skin and inflammation and diet is all intricately connected. It's it's really interesting when you remove inflammation from the body and that inflammation can come from seed oils or it could come from grains or pasteurized dairy, sugars, processed foods. I mean, they all, it could come from anything and it can come from all those things. And, um, you know, that all of those things end up in our gut and our gut is directly related to our skin and to our our health and to our mood and more to our mood than even our brains um you know what's going on in our gut so there's no way to 
mechanistically pull apart one thing from the other thing. It's all and it's whole and it's it's everything. We are a whole system and one thing in the system disrupts the entire system. Um, but I will put that essay in there, Mariama, and um, hopefully it, it's, it deals exactly with this idea of instincts and um, how our instincts are so easily overridden. Um, Ali is asking about anything I can point her towards as far as eating and gallbladder disease. Uh, her husband suffers from it and is yet to find a functional medicine person who's willing to recommend anything other than low fat diet and surgery. Um, right off the bat, I would say, have you heard of the book? It's going to be crazy, Ali. You have to have an open mind. It's called The Great Liver and Gallbladder Flush, the great liver and gallbladder cleanse. I'm going to write it down because I'm going to link it because I'm forgetting the one word. Um, definitely recommend that book. Definitely do not recommend the diet in that book. Um, I think it's liver and gallbladder cleanse. Flush? I'm not sure. I will look it up. Um, don't, don't follow the diet. Um, but as far as um, the gallbladder, there's a few things he can be doing as well um, without ripping it out and going on a low-fat diet, including uh, hopefully you have no seed oils in your diet. Hopefully there's no processed foods in your diet. Seed oils are just destruction to the gallbladder. Um, so I, I hope you're just, your fats are coming from animal foods. Um, other things you can be doing is there's all sorts of gallbladder tinctures that he should be taking every day. Uh, there's diff a million different companies, herbal tinctures that are making different blends. You could sort of educate yourself on which herbs are really beneficial to the gallbladder. There's some really fabulous ones, some really good supplements out there um, specifically for the gallbladder. Um, let's see, I would recommend bitters. Uh, bitters are just like a combination of herbal bitters, bitter herbs that are in tincture form. And he could drop some of that into water about 15 to 20 minutes before he eats taken throughout the day. So that would be, uh, that those would be the things that I would say right off the bat, get, uh, get that book, but there's definitely so many things he could be doing. And the fact that, um, you know, people are telling him to go on a low fat diet and have it removed is just yeah, that's, oh, that's the state of our medical care system though, isn't it? So, um, anyway, do try those things and let me know. I'm, I'm interested to hear how things go, but diet is, you know, of course, number one, and then all those other things are going to supplement and help his gallbladder out. And I think that you're going to find that book pretty interesting. Okay, I think that's about enough for this one. We'll call this one part one and I'll do a part two next.